All right, so we're back on Unstandardized English. This is season two, episode two. Uh, my name is JPB Gerald. Uh, for those who don't know, this is a podcast where I talk about different aspects of language, race, and whiteness, and all the things that those things touch, which means I could be talking about anything. And as you may have heard in the previous episodes, I just talk about whatever I want for a long time. Hopefully you find it compelling. Um, I'm only going to introduce myself this, this second time here, and then I figure in a future episode, you kind of know who I am. I'm a doctoral student. I live in New York. I uh, felt my research focuses on language, race, and whiteness, um, and I uh, try to get my ideas out there in whatever way I can. I publish in journals like all of us academic types do, but uh, I find that engaging with the public in this way, where I'm sort of doing things in a way that's not really constrained by editing... Um, is I don't know I don't I, it's heard by more people than the journal articles are read by let's put it that way <laughs> um gotta thank a couple of patrons I have a patreon which will be linked in the episode description um but I gotta thank the patrons that I have received in recent weeks um I need to thank Lauren Squire uh and I need to thank Rebecca Shapiro who appeared on the podcast in the first season. And I need to thank Andrew Lefkowitz from Integrated Schools, who I have spoken to on his podcast. Uh, they're doing good work over there. So uh, I need to thank them. Anybody who's interested and able to support, I will welcome any type of donation. I, uh, I had, as you heard in the first episode, some very silly little ads in the first season, um, which are just me advertising for Anchor. Um, and it's not that I'm trying to make a ton of money, but um, I, I'd like to pay for transcriptions and other things to make the podcast better. So if anyone's able to contribute, I would appreciate it. And that's enough about that. So today's episode is with Dr. Rebecca Campbell Montalvo. Uh, she's a postdoc at UConn. But more importantly, she has, uh, I said this at one episode last season with Dr. Betsy Sneller, if the, if the uh, mantra is publish or perish, she will never perish. Uh, Dr. Kevin Montavo has written many things. But today we're going to talk about an interesting topic, which is data, um, and specifically quantitative data, um, and how it relates to race, and how it relates to language, and race and ethnicity and all these things. Because um, I will tell you, when you're here in the episode, I bristle a little bit when I have to put in race numbers, right? You know, I want to make a point, for example, in an article I'm writing right now about sundown suburbs or suburbs where uh, that are predominantly white and how they got that way. And, you know, if I say your suburb that's 90% white is a problem because X, Y, and Z, someone can easily say, well, my suburb is 88% white, so it's fine. And then you're like, uh, you get trapped by the numbers. Or even if the numbers um, aren't the trap, then people focus on the numbers. Uh, and um, I do understand why numbers are helpful. They're sexy. And they're seemingly concrete, but they don't always tell the story that we think they tell. And in fact, a lot of the time, the numbers really tell the story about what people are asking more than they do about the people that are being described by the numbers. So I wanted to talk to her today um, about these issues, and I hope that you will enjoy the conversation. So stay tuned. We're going to talk about data. 
We're going to problematize numerical data and talk about ways it can be used more effectively. And yeah, enjoy. Welcome back, folks, to Unstandardized English. I am JPP Gerald, which you know because this is after the introduction, but I feel like I still should say who I am. I'm here with Dr. Rebecca Campbell-Montalvo, and we are going to talk a little bit about numbers today. So, uh, Dr. Campbell-Montalvo, uh, thank you for joining me. If you want to tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we'll go into some of the topics. Well, first, just thank you for having me. I uh, appreciate that. Um, I am a postdoc um, in the NEAG School of Education at the University of Connecticut, and um, I'm an anthropologist. Um, so basically, I look at how, I would say the big question I look at is how, what role do schools play in reproducing inequality? And like, that's this perennial question, right, that we've asked for a long time. But where I come in and where many others do is like, the, the actual site where we're training or just like integrating people into subjugation, like how does that look? So that's uh, where I come in. It's interesting. I, this is, this always happens. The guest tells me a little, a little bit of the background. I'm like, let me go down that road. And then we never talk about the articles. Um, so I'm not going to do that. So uh, the article that we, you've, you've you have many articles, um, but the one we're going to center things on today is an article that's about numbers. It's about quantitative statistics. I'm going to read the title here, but it's, you know, it's one of those, you know, academic titles, so you know how it is. Um, being quant critical of U.S. K-12 demographic data, colon, got to have the colon, uh, using and reporting race slash ethnicity in Florida Heartland schools. Uh, the citation is in the notes of the episode for those who want to go and find it, um, but that is the article. So can you tell me, just broad overview, what you were talking about in the article, and then we'll talk a little bit about what it means to be quant critical. Okay, perfect. Well, the article generally basically looks at, um, you know, how schools, I want to say, identify families um, racial identities. And so my question that came about um, basically looks at how does this racial data come to be? And that data came, uh, that question came about when I was doing um, this year-long ethnography in the Florida heartland. It's a rural county. And um, for that year-long project, I did over 100 observations in these two elementary schools. And part of the observations, you know, a lot of them were in the classroom, but a lot of them were also just sitting in the school offices. And um, so I, what I would see a lot of times is families come in and register their kids for schooling. And so um, that whole intake process um, was very interesting because a lot of the times it feels rushed um, and they have a lot of things they have to get through. But um, it's actually quite important because the data from that interaction is actually used in a lot of ways. Um, for instance, schools can receive extra monies if they have certain population of students, like if they have a 
certain percentage of migrant students or a certain percentage of American Indian students, they can get extra federal monies. Um, it's also used in, uh, you know, different reporting and, you know, looking at do children, might they benefit from particular language services in the eyes of the school, this and that. So basically the article centers around the interaction of children being registered for school and how a specific portion of that data, and that's the racial ethnicity data, like how does that come to be collected? What can we say about its reliability? Um, and then my other work looks at the language data, but you know, this article is just the race and ethnicity data. So pause for a second. The, the Florida Heartland, which I didn't, like it's so skinny, I didn't know there was a Heartland. Um, like how, where in Florida is the heartland of Florida considered? Just because I, I'm really just curious and also for people who are listening who just, I, I hadn't heard Florida heartland. I, yeah. That is like just such a crucial question for understanding um, my, much of my work. I mean, a lot of, you know, different folks' work, you know, translates to other areas, right? But a lot of it is like, okay, what's going on locally, you know, really bears what we see. And so basically the heartland is this group of six counties. Um, it's kind of by Lake, Lake Okeechobee. Um, and for a long time, you know, the different historical sources I found on the area from day one, you know, 100 years ago or, or so, um, had described it as culturally different from other parts of Florida. And so being from Florida myself, like two hours away from the heartland, um, you may catch a little bit of a southern you know draw in the way i talk but when i just drive the two hours over to the heartland it's a um i would say it's a very pronounced um southern draw and um much more frequently you see is agriculture is so huge so you have a lot of people who come in there for um a harvest harvesting so you have a lot of migrant workers many of whom are latino um you know cowboy hats and ranching lifestyles and things, you know, related to agriculture, very conservative, very religious. Um, so it's definitely like a distinct, uh, like pocket in Florida that's different than other parts. As you see, yeah, I mean, I suppose from the article that the, some of those things are things that I was, was gathering, but if I hear Florida Heartland, I, uh, yeah, I just didn't know. So that's that's useful. Okay, so to back back to um, to quant. Now, one of the things uh, this isn't just about your article um, that I've always personally struggled with a little bit is that like you know I'm I'm still in school right, so I'm taking my methods classes and you know I had to take a quant class and you know when I came in to my doctoral program, I'm thinking whatever I do, it better have numbers in it because no one's going to pay attention otherwise. You know, that's what I'm thinking. Um, and I know you're nodding, but they can't see that. Um, and <laughs> and um, so my first idea was going to be like the actual question, my, my like problem of practice, which I mentioned on the show before, is that I was working, I had not when I started this school, school, but two years before in my previous job, I was in charge of a, of a nonprofit adult education program, mostly language, but also computer classes. And a lot of the students who were, based on my information, limited information, poorer, didn't come to classes often. The class is free, it wasn't money, right? It's free. Uh, but I said, what can I do? Because there's a lot of free English programs around. 
how can I, what can I do? What intervention can I do to make sure their, their attendance is better, right? So if I'm going to do that, the number is attendance. That's a number, right? And if I could show that if my program had an average of like 55% attendance or something, which is actually pretty good for this sort of thing, and I could change the number to 75, then I would be the, the attendance man. I'm the man. I've, I've done all of the things, right? So then the more I got into the stuff and then I took an actual quant methods class, like maybe this is just the professor I had, but she probably was right about the fact that like in, in writing like actual quant things, there are certain, um, you really do have to cite a lot of other quantitative things to build your argument, right? Which makes sense. You sing if you have to do in qual, it's just that qual is very varied. Um, and the question becomes like, are you going to do the work to, let's say you're, because if I'm writing about race and, that, and that's often what I'm writing about or what, you know, depending on what we consider race, uh, where am I getting those numbers and how have those numbers been compiled and manipulated, right? Because I just want to make it like introduction to the paper. I want to mention that here's this problem with racism, which in the quant paper, I have to give some number to it. Well, where am I getting this number from, right? And who was the number about? And who, you know, and, and, you know, if I ask somebody in a certain place how they identify, it's one thing, but if you're in a school, because that's what you're talking about, like, you know, if you're seven, do you necessarily know <laughs> what you identify as and something like that, you know? Um, and I really have moved a little bit away from quant um, partially because I'm bad at statistics and also because I, uh, you know, I've just been iffy. I just feel like even if I were to, to find some statistically significant result in an experiment, I still feel like it's going to be misrepresented if I, if it blows up in the public and, or it'll be used as a yardstick. We need to be better than this number and not thinking about the people who were actually involved. So, that's where I come into thinking about most, not all, but most, you know, quantitative things. Um, and, and that's sort of my experience with it. And so you came in and you're, you're thinking about um, quant crit. So if you could tell folks a little bit about what quant crit is, although for, based on the words construction, I'm sure people could figure it out, but yeah. Well, sure. And let me just respond uh, to, you know, that, I really liked your point you made about um, the attendance and the, you know, the issues that you were running into. And so I, I definitely see what you're saying in one regard, because that was the same problem that I found in my field site in my larger research published in 2016, where teachers and administrators, paraprofessionals, not as much, com some were complaining because particular children couldn't, they did not participate in after school activities. And so I heard some, you know, I would say, you know, prejudiced or culturally based explanations like Hispanic families don't care about schooling. And so as part of my ethnographic research, I didn't really set out to look at, you know, you can't look at everything, but some things, you, they just come that you notice trends in your field notes after a long time. And, and what I had actually found and published about in some of my other work, like 2019, is that it was... Um, there was multiple issues, right? That school wasn't sending home um, notes home in a language families could understand, so they didn't know about some meetings. They would go to meetings and there was no interpreter. Um, some families didn't have transportation, so they, they couldn't go. 
Um, and so there was a lot of varied reasons. So I think that that's, you know, just a great way to kind of get us into quant crit is when we're thinking about, you know, the issue you mentioned of attendance or any of these other issues that, you know, we can numerically represent that oftentimes I feel like the first thing has to be kind of like a a qualitative like consideration of that. So I just want to put that out there. But, um, you know, to kind of just in a nutshell, what is quant crit as you asked? Well, if folks um, are interested in looking at it further, my first reading, and I'm not going to just, you know, recite readings, but if you look in the 2018 um, edition of Race, Ethnicity, and Education, um, three scholars, I, I don't know, I, this may be where they coined the term, but it was Garcia, Lopez, and Velez, um, basically coined, I, I believe they coined the term quant crit, um, to basically kind of focus on, um, you know, how we have to have this critical eye to numbers. Um, and so um, they and some other authors in that um, edition basically came up with like these principles um, and that I also, re you know, say what they are in my manuscript, um, which basically they're just five. And just to quickly say, one, the centrality of racism, two, numbers are not neutral, Three, categories are neither natural nor given. Four, voice and insight data cannot speak for itself. And five, using numbers for social justice. So just to pick a couple of these to like say in more detail is um, let's go with four, voice and insight. Data cannot speak for itself. So it's kind of like how do you, it's kind of like how you construct narratives about numbers. So it could even be that, that you know, that old adage or saying, you know, is the glass that's half full or half empty. You know, what is, when you have a figure, when is it a big number or a small number? So that's in some ways a little bit about that. And you can certainly refer to the original authors for more detail. Um, and then I would also say, you know, what this, my manuscript actually plays a lot into is the category three, which is categories are neither natural nor given. So it's kind of like if you look at my paper, which looks at, you know, these different racial categories, you know, first of all, how did these categories come to be? And, um, you know, we can look back and um, consider, um, you know, how racial definitions vary, you know, depending on where you go and through time and, you know, across the same person over their lifetime or in different situations. So, you know, first of all, these categories themselves, you know, are made up. They're not natural as, as, um, as the authors say. So um, those are a couple of, those are the categories and a couple of examples in de depth. But if I had to sum up in a nutshell for the listeners, what is quant crit? It's basically saying that we need to give a close eye, uh, be very critical, um, and interrogate how numbers come to be. And in fact, in um, just a quick sentence on, let me get the page number 182, basically this perspective holds that research attempting to highlight racial inequality often instead merely identifies correlations of race with measurements of low achievement rather than this understanding this larger historical and bias in measurement and so forth that that create this numerical representation so it's it's a pretty big um topic but yeah just being critical of numbers that we come to
I think that, the, I mean, there's a lot in there, obviously. Um, even that last point, I, I was paying attention. I'm just saying the last point really sticks with me, um, is that I, I see that a lot. You know, we all see that a lot, right? Because when you get to even research that isn't faulty, right? I'm not even talking about million word gap stuff. I'm talking about like numbers that are that are really supposed to be neutral. I mean, I know it's not, but just supposedly just cataloging what exists, right? It's literally just counting something and says that these people have these numbers attached to them, right? And even if the person is saying that as like stage one of the research, and then I'm gonna see why, what ends up being spread around is just that part. You know, this is the number, the score that this group of people gets on the test or these people get on IQs or these people get on whatever. Um, even if the person is actually making an attempt to do something anti-racist or something, as soon as that, that, that finding is, is brought out there, and I'm not saying, I'm, you know, like you never report any numbers, I'm just saying like um, reporting any number, like going, going into any, which is why I kind of hate sometimes in like a literature review or something like here, this number and this number and this number. I'm just like, oh, okay. Because now I, I get real uncomfortable with that because then I'm just like, now I got to go read all of these things if I want to actually have an understanding of it, which is why I tend to, to use quotes more than numbers just because I'm just like, you know, at, le at least I can stitch together a story there. Because I think that that's, it, it really, um, it really, becomes a really challenging issue when um, you have something that seems as, as, as strong as an anchor, like, like a number. Who's going to argue with the number? How can, this is, this is a number, it is a fact, right? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. a fact. It is an immovable object, right? But you could talk about categorization because of the research I'm doing, I just spent the last few weeks reading about categories of whiteness and like who gets to be white. They don't even know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they've spent, they spent the last four or 500 years trying to figure out who's white. If they can't really figure out who's white, then how do they know who's everything else? They just know it's just, just not, just not this. Right. So um, it's, and then you, of course you get into the like, the article title says race slash ethnicity, but like that itself is like a, a whole situation, right? Um, you know, are, you know, what race are people from Mexico, right? Well, they could be white. There's white people in Mexico. They could be black. They could, and so then like you get into this whole situation and if you're not just a person from this place, but now you've moved to another place where they have a different set of categories for race, right? And then you go to a whole other place where the way we just we make distinctions doesn't make any sense because if i went to south korea and i said well you know in the united states you and the japanese people are the same race they'd be like you better not conflate me with the japanese so it's 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 a whole it's a whole thing let's just put it that way um so when you were looking at the numbers in in the article so now we actually like talk about the article um yeah so what were you you looking at in the statistics for, for the K-12 schools in Florida, Outland schools, and what did you find, and so on? Well, sure, yeah, and and I just love, you know, what you said, and just to kind of respond to that before getting into the article, that, 
you know, I think that's a great point that you mentioned that, you know, you put a number out there and then people fixate on that, like the attendance number of both the programs you and I were both talking about it. And then they, they stop there and they're not looking at, well, why? Why is it like this? And then when you were mentioning about, you know, well, who is white? And just, you know, for, you know, I know you have all sorts of listeners. Um, what really stuck out to me was the um, was work that looks at how definitions of whiteness change through measurement in the census. So, um, and then when you match that to like the larger political things going on at the time, like, um, you know, the US government instilling uh, racial quotas on, on immigration. So it behooved them in their efforts, you know, of white supremacy, if they define certain groups in certain ways, so that, um, you know, oh, you know, white folks, we can have a, a large number of them coming over. And so let's just redraw the boundary around all of Europe, you know, and, and these people, we can have a lot of them come, but, you know, from other groups um, that were, you know, less desirable in the eyes of US government, you know, having those quotas as well. So um, just to share that with your readers. Yeah. And Sorry, I know you're about to go, but just it's just, it's just like it's who, who's making the decisions about the numbers exactly. is really is really yeah. important. Yeah, and that's like the whole theme of you know I think what we're discussing is, you know, who is making those decisions, and basically the article, you know, it's kind of what's ex you know there's a lot of things that excite me about this article, and one thing is like the multi-level approach, right? Because there's who is making decisions about identities there. Well, there's at the site of the registration, right? So um, there's the parents, right? The student, the, their children, any other relatives that are there during registration, and then whatever um, school employees, you know. And sometimes the school employees will read off all the choices. Um, sometimes the parents will fill out the form themselves. Other times, you know, school employees will just say, you know, Hispanic, right, or black, correct. And um, so that was, you know, one thing that. I was noticing that there was a difference in how registration went down so that um, because it's not, you know, um, it, because it's so different each time, certainly we would be getting different, you know, identifications based on how questions were asked. Um, but, you know, to your question of like, hey, you know, like, tell me, you know, about this article. Well, I guess I should really say that you know, so we have the site of the school registration between like the parents and the school employees, but then we also have like these broader national definitions of race and ethnicity, which we just talked about for a moment. Um, and those, you know, used by the school district, for example. So on the school registration form, which I just want to see if I included it in this article. If not, it's in my article that just came out. I don't see it here. In American Educational Research Journal, I have the um, school registration form there. The reason why I bring it up is because if you flip it over, it has the definition of all of the racial groups, the racial ethnicity groups that school employees are allowed to indicate. Um, and then, you know, where do those come from? Okay, the Florida Department of Education, you know, so, and then that kind of goes up to the federal level because you have federal programs that give monies um, for particular populations, as I mentioned earlier. So you have like this multi-level thing going on is the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is that, yes, while I was at the doing the observations and I would see kind of this interesting thing going on at school registration, it really wasn't until I had I was out of the field. I, I you know, I took my, you know, very good notes. 
I did, you know, 40, 46 interviews. I did a, a bunch of surveys. So I had so, so much data. And so I was going back um, because I wanted to, you know, craft this picture of, of the heartland, right? And of the area that I was working in. And so I was kind of going back to the Florida Department of Education's website and like looking at their numbers, you know, because you see a lot of ethnographic work and they start by describing the community in, in terms of like demographic characteristics. So I looked um, and what the Department of Education was saying was that there was no indigenous people, American Indians in the district. Um, and Zero. I had, right, and I had had, um, you know, uh, de-identified um, information that just basically said like, um, okay, there's this many students that are, you know, uh, have selected white, have selected Hispanic, Asian, and so on. And so, um, but the data I had, had um, either a yes or a no for all of the race or ethnicity categories. And so I was, you know, just kind of looking at that. And then my, my, I remember I was sitting in my office and my mouth like just dropped. And, and I, I guess that counts, kind of sounds like corny saying it like this, but I was just like dumbfounded and I was said, oh my gosh. And I ran upstairs to my advisor and I like had it printed out and I was pointing to it. And I said, look at this. I said, the Florida Department of Education says there's no American Indians in this school, but in this one school, look, there's a hundred right here. That's 10%. And I, I was just like, how, how is that? You know, and that's this larger question that she had guided me in asking, you know, all along was like in identities, like who, how does identity construction go? Who, who decides what identities are available for people to uptake, right? And, you know, what are the processes by which people can, can claim that, you know? And so what I was able to uncover when I saw, hey, there's all these American Indian students, but the state is not reporting it. So I kind of had to go backwards and say like, well, why is this the case? And so I contacted Florida Department of Education and they, they you know, basically um, agreed that, yes, if someone is... Um, claims an ethnicity of uh, Latino, that they are never reported in any racial category. So it turned out, and as my observations and interviews and language data showed, um, there was actually a lot of indigenous Latinos, um, mostly um, Mixtec and Nahua, um, Triqui, Zapotec, mostly people speaking those languages. So there was a lot of indigenous Mexicans and, um, that was like totally erased uh, in the school data. So that's the kind of the main finding. So when I'm growing up and I'm checking boxes off on the standardized tests and all this stuff, right? And, you know, you know, check it off black and, or African-American. Sometimes I say African-American, sometimes I say black. Sometimes I say both. Um, and it's interesting watching how things seem to change as I grew up, right? Because um, you, 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 I feel like I used to be able to just check off black and that's the end of it. But then there was like a separate thing that was just like, are you Hispanic or are you not Hispanic, right? And then um, they make this big distinction between like Hispanic being this whole thing and then but seems like often that's the only ethnicity 
<laughs> like, like it's the only ethnicity is Hispanic or not Hispanic, but then uh, it's not a race. So uh, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying like that's like, they, they're just very, they're very confused. Um, and then this is sort of the flip side of that, right? Where like, you know, where they're saying if you're, if you're Latin, uh, Latino, Latinx, or um, you, you have, there's no race, just whatever. I don't even know what to do. Just, just, just not, you're not, you're not in this category. I don't know what to do. Sorry. Um, and uh, obviously, if you, because I remember when I worked in the nonprofit, part of the reason the attendance mattered is because for our funding, right? It wasn't just me wanting to have more people in the class is because we had to have a certain amount of people to get for the grant to continue. Right. I mean, that's that the answer to all these questions is money. Right. Um, and so I was interested, not just because I wanted to have more people show up, but also because I wanted the grant to continue so that we could have jobs and so that the people could teach the classes. And the entire grant was based on money. I mean, sorry, numbers. Right. Um, attendance, attendance of certain groups of people, right? And you can, I don't know that this is the case within that school, it's not a grant per se, but like you can see how federal monies, like you're saying, or state money, or even local money is tied to how many students of different groups show up and what, how these groups do on this test. And if there's no people from that group, well, they don't have to worry about how that group is doing on the test. Um, you know, they're not behind you, they don't exist. Uh, and one could say, you, there, there's a very easy way to hide behind this and say, well, it's clearly a mistake because they just got confused with so forth. But someone pointed this out to them at some point, they just didn't do anything about it. So like, you know, it's really interesting to hear that sort of like statistical boondoggle that you seem to have uncovered there, because that is definitely not the only place. I mean, the, the different axes of oppression are complex, but one of the very clearest ones to me in this country is just the erasure of indigenous people. So, you know, um, although we all like to wear moccasins and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's troubling is to say the least. I don't know. I mean, you, you have your discussion about it, but like, that's, that's the first word I would use is that it's troubling because you can see how someone would easily just say that that is a mistake. It's an oversight. You know, we forgot about this entire group of people oh well um but what happened because of 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 that erasure um is what i would as what i wonder like well, in all the years that that has been the case because you came across it but, but it didn't happen the day before that um so in all the years that that had been the case you know what impact does something like that have i, I don't know the answer to that question i'm asking it into the air i mean do you know what the impact is it can't be a good one <laughs> Well, you, you again, a lot of good points and questions, you know, um, even, you know, when you were mentioning like, hey, there's these different terms like African American and black or Hispanic and Latino. And, you know, we all we know that those terms like actually have super different meanings and that, you know, African American, as I'm sure you're aware, is, a, you know, was a very specific term designed to do a job like a, a, it is a political statement. And even looking at Hispanic and Latino, you know, those are super different terms that um, those actually are different people, you right. know, so um, even these specific terms for themselves, you know, that's a discussion we could have. Um, and so when I'm thinking about, you know, you, you kind of mentioned like, oh, you know, they put um, tend to just only include that ethnicity 
in there, you know, of course that's, that's definitely an issue. And Laura Gomez um, and Jennifer Lehman, I, I like their work on the topic, uh, but of course there's a lot of other folks, but they kind of go into like how, um, like, especially with Latinos, like how these particular like um, formation of racial identities comes to play. And then I also, um, you know, you had asked, um, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, oh, you know, you know, how does it come to be, right? You, you had mentioned, well, it's not like they started this, um, in the article I call it racial reformation, right? Where, you know, people have an identity or identities and somehow or another, by the time the state gets the records, that's, that's not accurate, right? That's not, you know, what they would have claimed, right? So basically, you know, how does that happen? Well, um, you know, the article talks about several different ways because, you know, one of the most important lessons I learned um, is that so many things we love to say are like unicausal or like monocausal, that there's one thing that causes it. But so often it's just, you know, a, a confluence of these various factors. And one of the things that I found that caused the racial reformation in my article where you know, how is it that we're undercounting American Indians? Well, one thing was that uh, when I listened to registrars um, at the school, the school employees, they didn't think that that term American Indian, they thought it only referred to people in the United States. But um, looking at how the state defines it, um, they in actually include indigenous peoples of the Americas. So that term, according to the state's definitions, you know, and, and that's what I'm going on here. I mean, this is just a big paper about, you know, people's definitions and how they actually work in practice, you know, so, so there's a misunderstanding about, you know, what the state wants these categories to be and what the actual actors down on the ground um, believe it to be. And so that's, you know, one reason. I think another reason is I mentioned earlier, you know, um, these questioning processes that the registrars would use and, and where they, sometimes they read all the choices, sometimes they read none of the choices and had people, you know, check. Or they would, would use like what I would say is assumptive questioning, right? Where they would look at somebody and say, you know, Spanish, right? Or uh, for the language questions or, um, you know, Asian, right? For race questions. So there's several things that are going on that are causing it. And then this question you also asked of, you know, well, what does it mean, right? That, um, or what is it, how is it affecting people? And so the article, you know, there's a little bit in there about that, but the article mostly talks about um, how this process of, of racial reformation that I call comes to be. And so um, I wanna say Golash Boza is her last name. But of course, um, yep, Golash Boza, she did this great article on, you know, this problem or, or this question of, you know, racial formation theory, which is like Omi and Wynant, you know, from the 80s, where, you know, they talked about how these categories of people like come to be. And then later on, um, more recently, I want to say it was Hess's introduction in, um, I need the name of the book now. <laughs> Um, it's published by Lexington, such a great book. Um, I'm going to find it. I'm looking, I'm looking back. No, no, I'm not going to find it before you get there. <laughs> it's, uh, my looking is going to be slower than your brain, so. 
No, my brain is, you know, it's, it's late when we're doing this. Um, oh my goodness. I'm a terrible person. I'll come back to it. You know, actually, I think it's in the references. If that, that's much better to just look at the references of the article. Yes. Um, okay, so it's in the, the book Conceptual Aphasia in Black, um, which is basically, you know, Hess wrote the um, introduction where it's basically speaking back to Omi and Wynant's racial formation theory. And what they're basically saying, you know, from my understanding of it, and certainly I invite people to read the primary text, is that... Um, you know, we're, it's, I think they're saying we're putting like the cart before the horse. And so, and I think it's also saying that, um, you know, when you look at what Golash Bozel was saying is she's basically saying, look, you know, racial formation theory is good to talk about categories, but it's not good to talk about racism. And so when we're talking about like racism, differential treatment and negative outcomes, and bias and prejudice, differential treatment, that theories of racism are more appropriate for those types of inquiries. So, um, you know, I invite people to take a look at, at those, especially um, the conceptual aphasia in Black, um, you know, to kind of complement this discussion. So, yeah, I mean, we can talk about, and I, I did, I think, highlight already some, you know, negative outcomes of, of not, uh, of doing, not a good of job as we could to maintain identifications that families have. If we don't do as good of a job as we need to, where we record all linguistic, racial, and ethnic identities that families have, yes, that's negative. That's going to cause negative outcomes. That prevents the school from having important information that they should use to um, help them with, you know, culturally sustaining pedagogy. You know, it, it could mean that districts are missing out on federal monies. You know, so um, certainly there's a lot of, of negative uh, outcomes, I believe, and you know, there's a couple other citations in the article that come when, when we don't do a good job at this. So it, so it is an important question. And even you can scale up to the census, you know, what does it mean um, when we're not doing a good job at the census? You know, the census is only available in the limited number of languages. And so by looking at the languages that it's unavailable in, you know, those people are probably, you know, those identifications may be less accurate than other places where the identifications are, you know, the, the census is available in the, their language. So just, you know, so much, um, you know, that we can say about these, these, these super important identifications and, and um, you know, their implications. So zooming back a second, um, because, you know, this is what I tend to do. I, I tend to grab onto a point and chew on it. Because um, there's, there's no way to respond to everything. I just I think know. there's a lot, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you said in there. I just think how to let, let the listeners think about it. But one of the things that I think is interesting, being a little meta here, is like, it is true that, and it depends on the district, it depends on the state, et cetera. But like, pe schools, districts, whatever, do get money based on who's in the school not just how many but who right and um i get that i'm also certain that that's used as a uh well we're helping you already kind of thing right 
don't you ask for anything more? We're already giving you money because there are this many black people or indigenous people in your district. Um, so it's sort of used as this like pity money, I think, when the well-funded schools uh, get their money from the property taxes and so on and so forth. So I'm not saying anything to, to, to go against anything you're saying, because I, mean, I agree with you. It's more, I wonder that like, to, to even be more critical, it's like, we're saying we need to make sure that we get the correct information. Um, but then when you're talking about more theories of racism and that sort of thing, we understand that the result might still be another thing that reifies racial oppression, not just racial, but we're talking about that. Um, and, you know, it's like, because just thinking about reformation and then thinking about the, the, the connection or not connection to racism. When I was running that program, I keep coming back to this because I, I thought about this a lot and I didn't, I hadn't studied the literature yet. So like reflecting on it's been interesting for me. Like when I started that program, we had um, sheets from the city that was giving us money, right? So the city was funding it. And so we had to had that thoughts form for the identification. And I don't, it had, the, it was pretty standard census type stuff. It wasn't the census form, but that ethnicity and race stuff was the non-Hispanic, Hispanic, and then the same, the same things, right? So I was just like, all right, whatever. But then the last year or so, maybe two years, uh, no, last, the last two fiscal years that I worked there, we started, we started, we got a fi private funder. So we could kind of do whatever we wanted to do in terms of, the forms. So I changed the forms to get the information I wanted, but I still wanted race to be on the form. The problem with this, even though I had the forms translated into mo in the languages that most of them spoke, were that like, if you're new to the country, and this is an English language program, um, the concept of race is not the same thing. <laughs> even if the, like, even if the word is translated, and I don't even know if the word translates specifically, because um, then it, it left me with a question of like, I had people who, and, and people who were pretty advanced English speakers, however you wanted to find that. So like we could speak pretty comfortably in English. And I had one Brazilian student and they said, what do I put? And it would be easy for me to say if they were like black, because there's black people in Brazil, right? But they were not black. In fact, if you were choosing color, they were white. But were they also Latinx? but they don't speak Spanish, you know? So there was like a whole bunch of stuff going on there. So they just ended up writing Brazilian. And I wanted to be like, but that's not a race. But then like, who am I to say that you cannot be a race? So it left me, and then I realized that like, there were times when people just didn't really speak English at all. So I just had to choose. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know that the process, like this is a little program, it didn't matter. This information wasn't going anywhere because I wasn't, we weren't being funded by the city anymore. But like, uh, there's a person like me, except less critical, who's making those decisions for a, in a broad, broader scale, right? Maybe there's a few people talking to each other, but there's, they're, they're making those decisions. And it seems like what you're saying, those assumptive questions where you're looking at someone, you're like, uh, 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 white. Okay. Um, but then you hear them talk and you're like, wait a second. Uh, uh, no Latinx. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you don't know what to do, but, but, but like, and then if you, even, even if you ask them to give them agency and they speak 
you know, they're able to speak English in, in a way where you, you don't need things to be translated, they simply may have a different definition of race. And then you don't, then what do you even do, right? You should probably just be a paragraph box, but you know, that won't really work for filling out a form, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in all the things that you said, you know, you know, we, you talk, we talk about, you know, language, right, and, and its relationship to um, other identities, you know, and of course that's, you know, um, Flores and Rosa, you know, when they talk about racio-linguistics and how these identities, like, come together, you know, so, yeah, that's, it's, a, I don't know if a conundrum is the right word, but it's, it's very, certainly very messy because it's attempting to ascribe, it's attempting to say that there's some type of real division that's clean, um, that's meaningful, right, that, um, that exists, right, and, and so we all know that that's not the case. I mean, certainly people are different in, in so many ways, you know, but, um, you know, but it, it kind of always boils down at the end of the day to um, they're not actually being, you know, um, these, these groups that we're trying to measure. And, you know, and, and so you had kind of talked about, you know, um, like funding for schools, right? So, you know, why is it, you know, or, or when we focus on the schools, you know, measuring or attempting to identify families race and ethnicity, right, to get some type of monies, um, you know, well, should we really be asking, well, why are we making them, you know, why are they underfunded anyway? Which, which, yeah, I, I'm on the same page with you, and I, I want to emphasize that I do agree that white supremacy undercuts or underscores or underlines, you know, all of this, this whole discussion, right? Um, and even when there was money for some programs, like at, in the heartland, there was, um, monies for migrant students, you know, that was still negatively looked upon by others. Um, and I would hear, um, and, and a lot of these folks were white, and I would hear, you know, principals, um, you know, say things like, well, I don't understand why other students can't use iPads and items bought for migrant students. I just don't get why other people can't use that. It's just sitting there. Um, and then, you know, people who worked in the migrant office, you know, and these other, other, you know, data clerks, stuff like that, they would tell me, oh yeah, uh, people are all up in arms, you know, oh, we're giving a migrant kid a, a book bag or a, a binder, you know, and, and they get really upset about that. And so, you know, so at the end of the day, you know, that, you know, kind of reverberates back to, you know, white supremacy undercutting like all these discussions we're having. And, you know, you had just, you know, said a lot of things about your own experiences attempting to make these identifications for and with people that you're serving, you know, for these other reasons. And yeah, certainly, I mean, I don't feel like that that's a question um, that there is necessarily an answer to. I, you know, I would talk to my colleagues about that and we would just discuss, you know, some would say, well, if we stop measuring it, will it go away? And, um, and, you know, and, and I didn't really know what to say with that, but I did say, I feel like it would still exist. I feel like racial inequality would still exist without measurement, but can measuring be a, a, like a yardstick of, of our progress and maybe where we should focus more efforts and things like that. So uh, it's not to say, you know, it's still an open conversation for me. And, you know, and then when you were kind of thinking about, you know, these definitions that vary across places and you mentioned your Brazil student, um, you know, that's one of the things I ran into with this study is um, the notion of tribe 
is this idea that's, you know, I guess you could say very U.S. Um, that's not something really from my reading that, um, you know, is, is used in um, Latin American countries, in Mexico. So I think that um, the, when you see the definition of American Indian on, the, on the, the, the state and the schools are supposed to use, it kind of mentions that. So um, there's definitely uh, some conflict in that definition that um, can make people reticent to uh, uptake that identity because of the wording, like you say. And then lastly, um, you again made this good point with like, you know, sometimes, you know, if it's there's a language issue um, where you as the, or, or a cultural meaning difference where you as the observer, um, you know, ended up making these identifications. And there's actually a literature on that topic. Carly Ford is, is someone I've cited on that and others. Um, where they kind of look at this question of, you know, how does, I'm, and, and I'm just going to sum up that is, you know, I would say it kind of looks at how biases in general, right, or even the person's own identities affect how others identify um, in, in terms of on school forms and, and the like. And so I have definitely seen, um, especially in my language paper that came out uh, recently in the American Educational Research Journal, where families would report this, this demographic information and it was language in this case, and the school employees would just say, oh, I'm not, I'm not writing that. I'm not putting that down. That's not what it was it meant to ask for. Um, and, and so they had different reasons. So I, I'm not saying it's all school employees. It's definitely complex, multi-level. Um, multiple factor, but there's just just a lot going on in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, what has caused the observed, um, these observed numbers? Uh, another project I was working on related to sort of deciding on races that, again, I had to do was um, I got a grant last fall, and one thing I wanted to do is I wanted to make the point about citations, who's citing who, right? And so I just sort of picked, I got tired of it eventually. So I got to 60 articles because this is painstaking work. And I just went to, this, to the citations page and I tried to calculate what percentage of lead authors um, or solo authors were racialized scholars in different scholars' papers, right? And then, so that was one metric, right? Was like, if they had 63 citations, what was the percentage? Um, and I tried, I had to pick, I picked articles that had at least 20 citations because percentages get silly when there's only a few citations. Um, so there was that. And then the second aspect of it was, okay, but what is the, what is the, the article trying to do? And then I had to make, I mean, this is not, IRB, it's just me tooling around. There was no IRB in this, but like I had to make the distinction of is this article trying to change the status quo or not? Now, you can't really binary that. I'm just trying to make a general point. Um, and so then I had to do a whole bunch of like, is this person white? <laughs> you know, calls when I would, because most these days, most of the time you can find a picture of people who wrote the article if they're still active, especially if they have a website or something, right? Or they have a job, you know, and then they're in, in school is a picture of them. Um, and when I would get people who were, Clearly, like Western European and white, I was like, okay, that was not hard. 
uh, and if they were clearly from different certain place, and I was like, all right. But then you had people, and they and it, you're just like, what do you do with someone like the Brazilian person, or like, what do you do with someone who's clearly white but from a place where the majority of people aren't white? Like, you know, like what do you do with that? So I sometimes I just left them out of the data just because they just I couldn't like I couldn't make a decision, um, and because the point I was trying to make was that like uh if you are looking for articles that challenge the status quo you will often find articles that cite more racialized scholars and that was true but it was very tricky to make the point because i had to make all these decisions um about who qualified as this and that and i was trying to be fair but it was still me so like if that was a big project with a bunch of people and funding then it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been that hard they would decide they would make a decision but then you're still making decisions you're like this person counts this person doesn't count this you know and even the point being even if you were trying to measure something for the sake of doing something positive like you're still making decisions that can be no one's really being harmed by me counting the citations but like you know or what is it the good hearts law thing that says when a measure Oh, what is it? What is it called? Oh, I, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure, right? And um, because somebody will like, oh, we only have this percent. Let's get to twice this percent. Solved, right? <laughs> yeah, that that's like so super interesting. I'm working on this other project um, that I won't go into, but one of the articles I looked at, you know, to kind of learn more about this topic was this one, it came out in Perspectives on Psychological Science in 2020, uh, it's Roberts et al. And Racial Inequality in Psychological Research. And basically they looked, they were looking at, you know, looking at psychological research, you know, from 74 to 2018. So over what, like um, several, de several decades, right? Uh, you know, how much has the field paid attention to race? and who has been writing about race. And so while I would have liked to see more of their methods described, basically uh, they make a claim or a finding that um, most publications have been edited by white editors um, and under which um, fewer of those publications highlight race, if, I, if I'm understanding their, their finding. And so, you know, I mean, the finding per se isn't what's of interest up of here, but I guess their methodology, I want to say that they emailed people who had published this research and asked them to identify. Um, I, I, I'm not clear. That's what I was saying. You know, the methodology I would have liked to see a little more robust. But, um, you know, so how can you go back and, um, and, and attempt to reconstruct, you know, identities and map them onto who's talking about what? And so that kind of brings me to the point of, you know, the, the fallacy that race is, is, is physiological or vis vis visual, um, you know, because we say it is, right? That race is supposed to be about, you know, people's appearance in, in, you know, in general. But of course, people look so different. And, and even, you know, when you look at this latest scandal, you know, after it was Dolezal, now it's Krug, where, you know, you have these white women masquerading, um, in this case as, um, I think she was uh, Latina and African American. She claimed both those identities. You know, that was the so, most recent thing she claimed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Started so, um, in, she started North, North African. African. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then she was just black. 
and then she just threw some threw some Puerto Rican in there. So yeah, so you know, that's just to say that you know I I see what you're saying with um you know looking at you know who is cited, and I think that's so so important and looking at these different hashtags about, um, you know, citing black women and, and all scholars being mindful, especially, you know, majority scholars of, you know, who's in their syllabus and who are they citing and things like that. So um, very important discussion. But, but the, the whole thing with the Craig situation is interesting because it's as, as harmful as it is, it's like, look, I made the jokes too, right? Because like when I watched the video, I was like, like lady, lady lady what are you doing <laughs> right because we all know now and it just seems ridiculous and fake right but here's the thing if i had seen the city council testimony where she's like pretending and just talking about her black and brown siblings and like it's, it's just so cringy now but if i had seen it at the time i wouldn't have assumed that she wasn't what she said she was i would have maybe the, the accent was it it wavered right yeah, yeah it wavered but here's the thing what i might have assumed because i guess i tend to give people the benefit of the doubt and i didn't know her is this is a person who's maybe from the bronx but feels a little bit insecure in her identity maybe she's someone who like grew up wealthier than her relatives or friends and is trying to lean more into this identity in her voice because that was something that happened a little bit to me. I didn't do that and lie. But every so often when I was around my cousins who were more from the South, I sounded more like them. So I, I and they weren't poor, it wasn't a class thing, but I'm just talking about a different version of blackness. And so I, you know, I sound a little bit more like them and I, would I have considered that a little bit fake? I mean, it was certainly somewhat put on and I spoke a little bit more like my white friends when I was around them. Now I always talk like this and people can determine whether I sound like or not. But um, so I, could, I, would, I would have assumed that it was just both that and that she'd been in quarantine for a while and just had a lot of thoughts. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, because I think people watching what, because like the point is, is it's like I made the jokes too, because what she was saying is so ridiculous now. Um, but like, you really could sound like that and look like that and be, you could be, you know, your dad could be black. I don't know, like, like you know, I don't know, you know, it could be the case. Right. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen when my son grows up. Like my, my, my wife is biracial and, and my son has, his, as far as I know right now, his hair is curly, not, not, not kinky, <laughs> but maybe it'll change next year. I don't know. You, you can't predict these things. They're not like, they're not paint colors, right? You're like, well, if you have 20% red and 47% and blue, it's going to come out this color purple. Like it doesn't work that way, which is also why the, I don't care if you're white, black or purple thing is very annoying. Yeah, um, yeah. But like, yeah, so, you know, um, it's, yeah, thinking about who, who's being supported in people's work, who's being centered is really important. But then like, it is really hard unless you get an actual like literal autobiography. Sometimes when I was searching people, they would mention what they were identified as on their website. And I was like, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, or I knew who they were and I knew 
what they had written about it didn't time. So that was like, if it was like Helms or something, I was like, okay, I know who she is. All right. Um, <laughs> you know, if it was like Forrest and Rose, I was like, all right, I know who they are. Okay. Um, so I don't have to do the work, but um, still it's, it's, it's difficult and people should um, identify themselves, but then especially majoritized people may not have thought too much about it. Um, and then uh, you're asking someone who hasn't thought about it, to classify themselves. And I don't know that everyone is comfortable doing that. They should, they need to, they need to get over it, but it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. So, you know, if you're thinking, just sort of turn the corner and, and, and come to a conclusion here um, about what's really important about, you know, using statistics and using quantitative data in our education and anthropological research, um, what what would you say is like a really important thing for people to keep in mind if they're both creating research, um, you know, you know, collecting data and or consuming research? Because I think as much as we academics enjoy creating research, we're still doing more consumption than we are producing. Yeah, I mean, in terms of takeaways, you know. I definitely, um, you know, I specialize in qualitative, but I'm on plenty of, uh, you know, collaborations where uh, we work heavily with, with folks who are on the total end of the spectrum in terms of like um, quant work. And so, the, uh, you know, definitely I wouldn't devalue um, one over the other, even though my skill set may, may lean heavily more towards one. But um, I think that there's definitely the role for both. Um, and, you know, uh, Walcott has a lot of good writings on this, you know, about, you know, we can use um, quantitative methods to find the systematic nature of qualitative observation. So I find like approaches like that super valuable. But, and, and I think we should be equally critical of qualitative work, but I think that's already out there. I think that, yes, we should be equally critical of of any method of any measure of any findings of any numbers but there's already um the the critique of qualitative work out there and i think that's because it's associated with the social sciences whereas quantitative work is associated with the natural sciences and and those fields are more respected um in our society for for various reasons well they're so, already called natural sciences versus social sciences but like <laughs> right well yeah and, and i'm making that def, dif, differentiation as well you know like specifically but you know and that's kind of maybe another topic but you know what's the takeaway from the article is that um you know is is look at the the article that i cite uh, on quant crit because they do a, a far better job of of you know spelling out you know what's wrong with the theory or with um with what can be wrong with with uh, quantitative numbers and, and me measures and methods and so forth and so what this article is, is like an application of that's like a case study and where I, where i put forth my own theory so i would say you know the takeaway is that um it's definitely like a cautionary tale of you know it's true that we cannot have um you know, this blind faith in numbers and statistics and that they are very important, um, yet how they come to be formulated and made and created as numbers, if you go backwards to that story, it's, it's often not representing that which you think it is. Huh. Well, that's a pretty good place to end on. 
So uh, thank you for joining me this evening. I say evening because it's evening when I'm recording this, but I release these in the morning. So maybe for people listening, it'll be in the morning. Um, and I found it really interesting and it's different from a lot of the ones I've done because I don't tend to spend that much time talking about numbers for the reasons I said earlier. Um, and it's funny because I like, you know, numbers in terms of like, I like baseball stats and all of that and uh, so forth. But even if you go into baseball stats, like who's telling the story still matters. And who's telling the story matters no matter what kind of science, whether it's natural or social. Um, all right. So thank you for joining me. Um, and yeah, the link to the article will be in the, the show notes. And you can check back here in two more weeks for another episode, everybody. So thank you. And uh, have a good night, Dr. Cabo Montalvo. <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. All right.